Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Norris. Going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the comedian and writer Beck Hill. Beck decided she wanted to do a comedy for her comfort blanket and ran down a list of her favourites, many of which turned out to be by the American showrunner Michael Schur, who's the man behind things like The American Office and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Rec. She eventually settled on The Good Place, which is a brightly coloured, sci-fi-tinged musing on how to be a good person, uh, which is not only quite a good Beck choice, but also, I thought, a very, very good subject for a comfort blanket. So here's us talking about The Good Place. It's not the heaven or hell idea that you were raised on. But generally speaking, in the afterlife, there's a good place and there's a bad place. You're in the good place. You're okay, Eleanor. You're in the good place. Well, that's good. Sure is. (laughs) Okay, let's take a walk, shall we? Oh, did I have a purse? No. I'm dead. Right. Okay. Hello. Do you like me to clap too? Should we clap together? Yeah, One, let's do two, it. One, two, three. Oh, lovely oh, scene. that's going to look fun on the sound wave. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a podcast. Thanks for coming along. Thanks for having me. You have chosen something really lovely, which I was delighted you picked, which is uh, <laughs> The Good Place. Yeah. Lots of people got really, really into sitcom in lockdown because it was a comfortable place to go. Did you watch this in lockdown or were you a fan beforehand? I was a fan beforehand, but I rewatched it in lockdown and finally managed to convince my husband, Gav, to watch it as well. Because I've been trying to get him to watch it since I started watching it. And I was like, look, you'd really like it. It's really smart. It's clever. Like, it's funny. You'd really like it. And then, yeah, it took, it took an entire pandemic to convince him to sit down and watch it with me. Eleanor, come on in. Hi, Eleanor. I'm Michael. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Oh, one question. Where am I? Who are you and what's going on? Right. So, you, Eleanor Shellstrop, are dead. Your life on Earth has ended, and you are now in the next phase of your existence in the universe. Cool. Cool. I have some questions. Don't you mind? Because you need those things that you're both going to watch together. As well yes. As, there's nothing worse than finding something you're watching on your own you really enjoy and then go, this is an us thing, this should be an us thing, and then you have to do a big sales pitch on it. Yeah, yeah. I think actually what convinced him, it wasn't even me, it was because during lockdown we got really, we re-watched, re-watched The American Office and got really into Office Ladies, the right. podcast, with uh, Jenna Fisher and uh, Angela Kinsey. And they had... Michael Shaw, he's been on a couple of episodes, I think, as a guest. Right. And then he was talking about The Good Place on that and promoting the book he'd just released that came off the back of everything he'd learnt while making The Good Place. How to Be Perfect was the name of his book. And the way he talked about it was so fascinating. You wrote a book. Yes. And the book is called How to Be Perfect. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it. So this book came out of the show, The Good Place, that I created, um, which was about 
if you haven't seen it, it's very hard to explain it in one sentence, but it's essentially a, I pitched it as a show about like what it means to be a good person. And for the show, I read a lot of ethics and philosophy by a lot of uh, very old, uh, boring people. Gav was like, oh, I really want to read that book, but I don't want there to be any spoilers because right. it will refer to the show. I better watch the show. So it it, it took external, <laughs> multiple external factors to convince him, which is very frustrating because I'm the sort of person where he can say to me, you should watch this. And I usually will because yeah. so often he'll be like, you won't like that. And he's right. There's a lot of things I won't watch because he's like, I know you and I know you won't enjoy that. He's an unrecommender. Yeah, yeah. And it'll be stuff that he likes. Yeah. But I'll be like, should I bother? And he'll be like, I liked it. I don't think you would. And any time that I've been like, well, don't tell me what I do and don't like, I'll sit down and be like, no, you're right. I didn't enjoy that at all. But it says something about your understanding of each other, that you know yes. what's going to be in your wheelhouse, what your tastes are and things. And you, if you know someone really well, you can probably have a fair stab at it. Yeah. It's quite sweet as well that his way into it was through wanting to sort of self-improve. Through the yeah. book on, on how to make yourself better. <laughs> yeah, well, I think because the book is more so about all the um, ethical philosophy and all that sort of thing. And at the time he'd, because um, he'd read Sapiens and uh, he was reading something, there was a bunch of other sort of philosophical books that he'd been reading. And so I think he was keen to see whether this sort of fit into that. He loves reading. He's a big reader. What are you reading? The Metaphysics of Morals by Immanuel Kant. It's a treatise on the aesthetic preconditions of the mind's receptivity to duty. It's a book on how to act good. Oh, great! Like, I'm a big fan of when something popularizes something which is off-putting. Big fan of like TV versions where an astronomer explains complicated things. You wouldn't yes. read their book, but I will watch the telly program. Yes. And I love things like Sophie's World, where you take really big, highfalutin ideas and mm. package them to make them accessible. I think there's no shame in that. No, not good, at all. The Good Place is one of the best examples, I think, of taking something very off putting mm -hmm. and making it massively popular and accessible and fun. Yeah. So you're going to help me figure out how to stay, right? Oh, that is a really tough question. Most great philosophers would say, Helping you is pointless, that you can't try to be good, especially when your motivations are so obviously corrupt. Yeah, but what do most great philosophers know? Oh, man, it's, it's very hard. There's moments that I really want to talk about that I, I probably shouldn't because I don't want them to be spoilers. We should probably establish this going, it's almost yes. impossible to talk about The Good Place without spoiling it almost constantly. Yeah. And you're wondering, it came out in 2016. What's the statute of limitations on giving away how The Good Place works? Yeah. So this is how it works. The Good Place is divided into distinct neighborhoods. Each one contains exactly 322 people who have been perfectly selected to blend together into a blissful, harmonic balance. Do all the neighborhoods look like this? No, every neighborhood is unique. Some have warm weather, some cold, some are cities, some farmland. But in each one, every blade of grass, every ladybug, every detail, has been precisely designed and calibrated for its residents. Do we just, I mean, is this a case of, because if people, <laughs> if people are looking at this podcast and they're going, which episode should I listen to? They might not listen to this one if they haven't seen The Good Place. Yeah. There's a lot of frozen yogurt places. Yeah, that's the one thing we put in all the neighbourhoods. People love frozen yogurt. I don't know what to tell you. So chances are the people listening are familiar with The Good Place. Yeah. And if they're not, maybe this is where we say, hey, pause yeah go and watch the good place come back and listen to this i think it's a very hard one to talk about without giving stuff away yeah and i think also there is a real joy in the good place more than most sitcoms in watching it for the first time not knowing where it's going Ex oh absolutely because i had no idea yeah. and weirdly i started watching the good place because i was working on a pitch for a tv show myself and i was running it past a few different friends and twice people said have you seen the good place now there are technically no similarities between what i was pitching and that thing just the idea of, of putting in these twists and turns that make you go oh and it completely changes the yeah. way that you view a, sh a show and uh several people said to me oh have you watched the good place yet as well, an example of something that does some very good twists and so i did and then i went oh gosh okay yeah this is phenomenal sorry so she's right yeah she figured it out no this doesn't make any sense. I think it's one of the things that you could say it did for the first time, 
or certainly most successfully, is to borrow that format that had come from sort of mystery television. I know that Michael Schur, who created it, consulted Damon Lindelof from Lost before starting and said, <laughs> do you think this is going to work? And Lindelof said, just, yeah, go for it, do that. Have it so no one knows what's going on. Mm. The deal with a sitcom usually is within the first episode, certainly with a pilot episode, you should know the sit. The situation should be there and it should be fixed. And every time you drop in, it should sort of stay roughly the same. Yeah. Because that's what a situation comedy is. You throw balls at a fixed stick. The characters don't move. Nothing changes. What happens in The Good Place is they keep moving the situation. Mm. The characters stay fairly fixed. So you can yes. follow them. Uh, and occasionally they will flip characters over and change them. They do a lot of fun stuff with characters. I, yes, we can do spoilers. They can change who one of the core characters is. When I say I'm meditating, I'm just trying to figure out what the fork is happening. I think we might be in an alien zoo or... On a prank show. No, Jean, you were dead. Oh, that's a dope prank. But it's always within the language of sitcom, but trying something where you keep moving the background. It's almost like it's against green screen. And yes. they'll drop different things down behind yeah. them. So how do they react to this? It's very happy to completely upend its sit, which I don't think I'd ever seen before. No, you're right. So I have this ruling from the judge heading on down to earth to reverse the deaths of these four people. It's kind of tricky. You know, it starts up a new timeline, so there might be some ripple effects. But it's necessary for the, the experiment that we're doing there. I think what makes a sitcom, when you know it's great, is when you can essentially take the characters from a sitcom and put them in any situation and know exactly how they would respond. Yeah. Like, I've literally dreamt an episode of Seinfeld once. Like, I woke up yeah, yeah. with the... I ended up tweeting it, like, as a thread because it was... So perfect. Yeah. Because your brain just goes, yeah, I know exactly how those characters would react. I know how they interact with each other. You could put friends in space and yeah. then you would you would know how they would all behave. They do me? <laughs> you know, like, um, okay, um, could that report be any later? It's why fan fiction works for those. Your characters are really well worked out and it's why that's different from writing something new. It's also why the American system of having sample scripts works. Mm. You can see who can write by throwing them Frasier and Cheers and say, write an episode of uh, Parks and Rec. And you can demonstrate your ability to write within a room of established characters. Yeah. What the showrunners are usually doing, the guys who get the really big bucks and all the respect, are developing what that matrix of characters is going to be. Exactly. Your job as a writer is to respond to that and be able to write anything. And it's... It comes from traditional clowning. I mean, it's why Commedia dell'arte works, is that every time it turns up, there's the same guy. There's a horny guy, there's a hungry guy, there's yes. a lonely guy, there's a stupid guy. And it's, I only noticed this really recently, the carry-on films are that, as in they yeah, are of lots and lots of different situations with the same cast in them, and there's always a horny guy and a big, tall yeah, guy and a right. clumsy one and a, a sort of flirty woman. Have you got a large one? I've had no complaints so far. <laughs> it's like watching medieval theatre. The yeah. same guys turn up, oh, there's the blacksmith, he's always a bit angry. The characters will go anywhere, and we love that. We love to watch a little village of people mm. who we know how they're going to react. It is the Asterix village. You know exactly yes, who they're all yes. going to be. I think what was so brave about The Good Place is they just dove in as if we all knew who these characters were immediately. Eleanor, I, I'm Chidi Anagonye, and you are my soulmate. Cool, bring it in, man. <laughs> Yeah. Where they could keep moving the goalposts of what was happening, the environment and all that sort of thing. They could keep moving that and just trust that the actors, the script and everything were doing a good enough job of explaining who the characters are that we would come along with them. And we did. Eleanor, I swear that I will never say or do anything to cause you any harm. Good. Because those aren't my memories. I wasn't a lawyer. I never went to the Ukraine. I hate clowns. There's been a big mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. Think, we do come along with I them. think it's a sensationally confident show. And mm. one of the reasons it is, is that Michael Schur, who, who made it, had made lots of these and clearly loves the form. Yeah. This is probably my core feeling about watching it again, was that this is a sitcom about sitcom and about the love of sitcom and a belief mm. and a faith in the half-hour comedy or the 24-minute comedy to tell incredible stories of a standard that could be told by any other art form. And it does it by saying, you've seen these before. You know what's yeah, going to happen. Yeah. Episode one, someone will say, welcome to the neighbourhood. Eleanor, come on in. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain who everyone is. And you'll yes. go, oh, I've been here before. This is how Brooklyn Nine-Nine starts, which oh, I'm sure I did. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a great pilot. It introduces you to all the characters. Someone yeah. just leans into the office and says, 
here's this person, here's that person, yeah. here's, here's Boyle, here's Rosa. Tell me about Peralta. Jacob Peralta is my best detective. He likes putting away bad guys and he loves solving puzzles. The only puzzle he hasn't solved is how to grow up. They explain who they are. This opens the same way. Michael shows her around, explains who everyone is. Eleanor, Chidi, I would like you to meet Tahani and Jianyu. They are soulmates and your next door neighbors. Mm. And then, because you've seen this kind of show a million times Turns before, on his head. it keeps flipping it over and you yeah. go, oh, I was being trusted to know the language of this and that you will play tricks on the fact I've been told this story before. Yeah. Before we start, I know you were a Buddhist monk and kept a vow of silence. Would you prefer to remain silent here as well? I will have faith that when you tell me that guy is a Buddhist monk, he's the Buddhist monk guy. Yeah. So you can pull one of the best jokes in recent sitcom with the Buddhist monk guy, and I will go along with it because I'm delighted to be tricked and to see how I've been tricked. You literally haven't said a word since we got here? Yeah. I think with Eleanor, what is nice is that we never know more than she does. Yes. And so... They can keep flipping it and turning it over, but we always have to be like just as surprised as her. Maybe occasionally there might be something where she does something and it's revealed that, she, you know, it was a little part of her plan, but that'll be in the same episode. It, it, it's very quick and you're not left going, oh, I thought this and now I don't know. Like she is a trustworthy yeah. protagonist. She doesn't lie to you, she doesn't hide things. In fact, the definitive moment is the episode 13 of the first season where she works out what's going on before any of the characters do and possibly before you do at home mm. and you see in her face for a second oh, it's, or two maybe it's a couple of beats I've got goosebumps just thinking about it and it dawns on her what's going on she goes I know what's going on and you just hold your breath because mm. she's always told you everything she knows up to that point you've been looking through her eyes if you haven't quite caught up with her the fact that she's one step ahead of you you're, you're hanging on the edge of a cliff for a second yeah. and then she tells you what the big twist is and it's so delightful because for the rest of the show, you've been completely keeping pace with her. So her being the Columbo who's worked out who the killer is, yeah. she's got the answer and you hold your breath waiting for her to tell you because yeah. you trust her completely, even oh, though yeah. she's a massively untrustworthy character. No, that's it. Yeah, because she lies to everyone else, but she's <laughs> she doesn't really lie to herself. Like she probably no. was for most of her lifetime, but now that she's in the afterlife, she's she's having to face those truths and we're learning those with her. That's what her flashbacks are. They're yeah. the flashbacks to her previous life, which she used really well in the first season for you to know where they've come from, especially when she's mistaken for someone better than herself. The flashbacks mm. are just there for Bathos to see how terrible she is compared yeah. to this incredible uh, lawyer who gets innocent people off death row yeah, and does yeah. charity work. But those flashbacks are her thinking of when she's been bad, when yes. she's lied. So she's very, very in touch with her own failures mm. because she admits them to herself. And that's what you're invited to see when she does a flashback. You're in her head going, yeah, I'm not that good, am I? Mm -hmm. And it's a brilliant trick to say she's very self-aware. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. Hey, guys. Okay, Eleanor, reminder, we switched to a rotating system for choosing a designated driver and it's your turn. Got it. Full disclosure, I forgot we were doing this new system. I got off work early. I've been here for about an hour and I'm already pretty drunk. Someone else will do it. Good call. I think what I find so comforting about the show is it's always nice to have a redemption arc yes. with, with your character. This is a redemption arc for all the characters. Yes. And it's delivered in a way that despite the fact that they're all unlikable, I think everybody has something that they don't like about themselves. Yeah. Often more than one thing. Like we're all deeply ashamed of certain things or behaviours or wish that we were better in some way. I think a lot of people are quite self-aware. And I think a lot of us are also terrified about being the sort of person who isn't self-aware Yeah. Uh, to the point of our own detriment where quite often I was talking about this with someone else recently about just in terms of confidence and how sometimes we're so terrified of being seen like someone who is too confident yeah. because we see those people and we look down on them and it's like, why do we look down on them? Why do we decide that we don't like them? Like, what, because they believe in themselves. And so we're so worried about other people judging us in that sense that we then don't allow ourselves to feel confidence in ourselves or allow ourselves to reward ourselves for moments that we should be rewarding ourselves. And it makes our own lives harder and it's nice to think that you could have your own redemption story. You could have that self-awareness that then leads to growth and reassurance 
Well, yeah. the, set, the setup allows that in the sense that the first person you meet is Ellen Shellstrop. She's welcome to the good place. Mm. You, know, you have done well in your life. Here's your reward, your beautiful house and everything you ever wanted. And she knows for the opening 10 minutes that that's not her. There's been a clerical error. Yeah. And it's a beautiful setup for her to go, I know that I am not the person you think I am. I know myself better than the outside world does. We all feel like that. Oh, I know I'm shitty. You reckon I'm really good. Oh, God, what if you knew my secret? And then as you peel back the other characters throughout the series, you realise... Well, the first of all, there's Jason. He's got a secret. He's hiding. Suddenly she's got an ally. Someone else has got mm. a dirty secret. And then by the end of the first series, you have the answer that all those people, even the people who were presenting as incredible philanthropists, incredibly good people, yeah. incredibly moral people, they've all got a dirty secret as well, which is why they're there. Yeah. They're there to do precisely what every religion and moral philosophy was set up to do, which is say, self-examine. Look at yourself. Mm-hmm. Do you measure up to the standards which you'd like to set for yourself? And at the beginning, you feel that Eleanor's hell is that everyone else exceeds anyone's possible standards. And then slowly, one by one, you realise the reason they're there is they haven't lived up to their own standards yeah. and they need to self-examine harder. Oh. But it didn't matter. Because my motivations were corrupt. And the people like Tahani and Chidi, who appear to be morally superior, mm. find out they need to self-examine as well, at least as badly as the complete wasteoids that they've been paired with for the sitcom. It's such a lovely structure. Yeah. I've heard people say, though, that they have a barrier when they first watch it, which is they don't like Jamila Jamil's character because mm. she's meant to be a bit of a pain in the arse. Yeah. And lots of people say, oh, I, didn't, I couldn't stick with that because I didn't like her. And I'm always interested in going, oh, well, what is it about her that is more of a barrier than the awful Anna Shellstrop? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's partly because you're not supposed to like her. I think mm. you're supposed to not like her in the same... Because, again, we, we live through Eleanor's character. Yes. And Eleanor doesn't like her. Yeah. And so there's enough there dangling for us to go, yeah, I can see why she doesn't like her. She's the mean girl. It, exactly. It's a school setup, isn't it? She, yeah. She's a Heather. We weren't getting into the good place anyway. I mean, look at us. A self-obsessed socialite a ridiculous giraffe, an absurd British aristocrat, a narcissistic attention seeker. Are these all me? Yes. I was going to do eight for you and one for everyone. <laughs> because she's a poser as well. Like, yeah. that's that's the thing. It's like, she's not mean. She's excessively nice. But in a way that you're like, I don't think you really mean this. There's I don't think you are this nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're hiding something. I think it's partly that. And I think it's partly because we were talking about confidence and how very much over here the the British, as I have come to find out after living here. Actually, this is my, on this day of recording, 15 years living in this country now. Happy Brit Day. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think that's, that's I think that's it. what I've learned. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the word. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry as well. I'm sorry. Yeah, oh. that's how you guys I feel celebrate. I very warm now. So warm and sorry. Yeah, that's the natural so sorry. Yeah. Modeling, that's a crazy life. Want to tell me about that rock bottom you probably hit? Well, I didn't really do it for long. Couture just doesn't fit my body. I'm cursed with ample bosom. And yet you soldier on. So I think it's a very British thing to be terrified of being seen as arrogant. Yeah. And so therefore we are instantly dismissive of anything that could be mistaken as arrogant. And yeah. that means that we don't like people who are confident. And obviously Jamila, Jamila's character is very confident yeah to the point that you're like it's a bit arrogant like she's a bit arrogant as well and we don't like that in ourselves so we you know especially here in britain i think a lot of british people watch the show and go oh no is that how americans see us oh i don't like that feeling i don't want people to think that we're like that what's this show called again it's deirdre and margaret it ran for 16 years on the bbc they did nearly 30 episodes and so they shy away from it they're like no no i'm not like that i'm not british people aren't like her we're not princesses you know but yeah i mean she, she has got what she's got is that america as an american archetype that they can see her as is a british princess mm. she's a society a socialite she's not a royal princess but she is very well connected everyone's her her godparent there's a great joke towards the end where you realize that big ben is her godfather yeah. well one of the great things about the good places it will push a joke until it gets to a yeah. point of breaking reality because it'll do anything for a joke and you slowly realize that one of them goes are you referring to the clock, Big Ben? Yeah. Yes, my godparent. Because uh, everyone is her friend. Everyone, She's got that boastfulness. I am an expert at mediating conflict. Like when my friend Scary, Sporty, Posh and Baby had an issue with my other friend, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. She's very much from a sort of abfab kind of uh, tone that Americans yes. quite like. And then only as the show unfolds do you realise that she's only in that position because she's so underconfident. Yes, 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think that's, it's a shame for people who can't get through it to the point that they can see that as well, that they can sort of start to see more of that character. I think there's certain characters that will always affect us when we're watching something more than others. And almost more than not, it's probably because we see too much of ourselves in those characters. (laughs) And we yeah. don't like that. We don't like having the mirror held up. So we're like, ugh. We're not meant to be boastful or arrogant because we had an empire. You were not yeah. meant to mention we were in charge. Oh, it's I mean, very bad form. She's literally the embodiment of the empire. Yeah. As someone from Pakistani descent who's very, very British. I mean, she's got all the things that we're not proud of. She's a reminder of, of, the, <laughs> of the past and the way uh, certain cultures were taken. She's arrogant and you have to learn to trust her and like her alongside Eleanor yeah exactly you went to learn to love her Camilla's work has been mediocre for years mother and father are probably rolling over in their cryogenic chambers really you don't think they would be proud of her for having a whole museum wing dedicated to her work my parents standards were incredibly high and they were impossible Please. Chidi is such an interesting character because it's not really clear for a while as to why he's there yes. because he, he does care and he does want to do the right thing and his heart is 100% the right place and quite often his actions are at the right place and it, you realise that he ended up in the bad place because he second-guessed himself so much yeah. that he actually became the opposite of helpful. He wasn't doing anything. You hurt everyone in your life with your rigidity and your indecisiveness. Oh, fork. When that big reveal happens on episode 13 of the first series where you reveal that, that they're, they're not as good as they thought they were, yeah. he's the person you go, well, what they can reveal about him? And it reveals that he was paralysed by That was it. That's it's not it. helpful. And then the second series starts to explore that and peel him away. And watching him sort of fold into himself, him suddenly being given the gift of the truth about himself and him going, oh, I've never thought I was doing anything other than being useful. You're right. Every friend, every girlfriend was driven nuts because I couldn't do anything. I missed my mom's back surgery because I had already promised my landlord's nephew that I would help him figure out his new phone. I made everyone miserable. And the simple, beautiful expression that he's someone who's an explainer Mm-hmm. And he's written a 4,000-page book yes. that even God can't understand. Yes, yeah. So he's failed, and the one thing he's here for is such a clever thing, especially in a program that's about the joys of explanation and the joys of academia and the joys mm. of philosophy, that the guy who's the big advertiser of it is terrible at it. Yeah. I think it really speaks to a part of me that loves sci-fi. Yeah. Because in the same way that Hitchhiker's Guide will have those beautiful moments where there's the idea that something like his his book you know he's he's been working on his book his whole time it's this what you don't realize is like the gift is him it's not yeah. the book he can produce it's it's who he is and what he has to give to the world as a human being who is active within society and it makes me think of hitchhiker's guide how the second computer that they build after deep thought yeah to help find the meaning of life is humanity it's not yeah, yeah. it's the not ex- our thing we it's- are the experiment the answer weirdly is within all our hearts yeah it's a that's right metaphor. yeah a computer of such infinite and subtle complexity that organic life itself will form part of its operational matrix and it shall be called the earth oh what a dull name you're right, the sci-fi, I think it won some sort of nebula awards and things, The Good Place. It's got a real faith in that nerdy science fiction tone, mm. the heightened reality, the supernatural nature of it makes it really exciting because I do love a sitcom that's not set in the real world. They are so mm-hmm. rare now. Yeah, It's a joy yeah. to find one and you, you seek them out. But it's got the same trick philosophically as Douglas Adams and Kurt Vonnegut use mm. of hovering above humanity from orbit yes. and raising a Spock-like eyebrow at us, You're which right. is so useful. Mm. It's a great comic device. It's why Spock is funny. Can I just say that raising a Spock-like eyebrow at it is such a lovely phrase? <laughs> I love <laughs> it's, that. It's, well, one of the things that I love about Spock as a character is it's this beautiful expression that a neurodivergent person will be useful. Because mm-hmm. he's looking at a slight angle. And if you're a clown or a comedian, your job is to look at the world from a slight angle. Mm. And one of the ways you can look at the world from a slight angle is hovering above it. Yeah. Which is where uh, Kurt Vonnegut often placed his people observing 
the folly of mankind. Douglas Adams borrowed that from Kurt Vonnegut. And there's lots of that in The Good wow. Place. The gods are looking at us. And a puny humans kind yeah. of angle is a really good way of delivering observational comedy. Mm-hmm. And all Hitchhikers is, is a long observational comedy routine about 1978 delivered from orbit. Yeah. And it's such a funny trick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what's so lovely about Michael, the character of Michael by Ted Danson, uh, is that even when he's evil, when he's a demon, he's still obsessed with humanity. He still yeah. thinks humans are really interesting. He's fascinated by paper clips. And the, the, the yes. Are, again, very digital watches, very Douglas Adams. Yes, yeah. And it's really, really lovely to see his fascination with stuff. We would like to present you with this human starter kit. Car keys. So I can lose them and say, has anyone seen my car keys? <laughs> and when, then I can do that, you know, that thing where you... you <laughs> I love that concept of like, okay, if you were looking at humanity from a different angle, what what would interest you? What yeah. would you find strange or curious or, you know, it's the joy that he has in little things. That's the door to Earth. Go through there, you'll be wherever you need to be. You won't have any other powers, though. You want to get around, you're just going to have to take a bus or something. A bus? Oh, boy. Oh, man, I'm going to sit in a front-facing seat. Or no, no, maybe a sideways-facing seat. I'm, I'm going to get so motion sick. Oh, man. There's something, whether it's burping or farting, or there's something that he has happens for the first time, and he's utterly joyous about it. He's so happy. I a bike. I put a coin in a thing and got a gumball. And then someone came up to me and said, hot enough for you? And you know what I said? I said, tell me about it. One of the lovely things that comedy can do is to look at the banal from a different angle. And mm. it's, it's Billy Connolly going, have you ever wondered? It's just that yeah, thing where you sit back and, yeah. have you noticed? And, What's the deal with? Yeah, and the best mm. sort of comedy is to observe something that everyone's already seen, but see it from an angle that they may not have thought of before. Yeah. And your gift as a comedian, as the clown, is to look at it from an angle they don't expect. Yeah. And two brilliant ways of doing that, either from a childlike point of view, mm-hmm. and there's something lovely, beautifully childlike about Ted Danson because he's new yes. to humans. Yeah. Or also you can do it from an incredibly wise, Spock-like point of view of Mm -hmm. going, I'm above all this. And I think The Good Place has both those voices in it all the way through. People who don't quite understand each other because they're at a funny angle to reality. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. I don't know if what I'm going to say is going to hurt or help, but screw it. Do you know what's really happening right now? You're learning what it's like to be human. All humans are aware of death. So we're all a little bit sad. All the time. That's just the deal. Sounds like a crappy deal. Well, yeah, it is. But we don't get offered any other ones. And if you try and ignore your sadness, it just ends up leaking out of you anyway. I've been there. And everybody's been there. So don't fight it. And I would say that the cynical part is provided by Eleanor mostly. Yes. Because she's really, really human. Yeah. In a sense of all our worst impulses. Yeah. She's the worst person to put there. Because she will disappoint Michael, yes. who thinks humans are fascinating. And she's cynical because she she's in it. She's so stuck in it that she can't have the joy. She can't have the Michael angle. She can't have the overarching, well, I think Maya Rudolph towards yeah. the, the, the godlike angle. Yes, Maya Rudolph, who suddenly goes, I've just discovered podcasts. Is yes, that the, the yeah, really banal yeah. things that the gods are fascinated by. She loves burritos. By. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All humans on Earth and in the afterlife will be extinguished, and we will start the entire human race over from scratch. And you know what's so funny? In a very roundabout way, I am actually rebooting Ally McBeal, because I'm rebooting everything. <laughs> anyway, congrats, Michael. You won. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You okay? No. I was just about to tell an awesome story about a wing eating contest that I lost and a barfing contest that I won, but then a hole opened up in the ground. I know. I made the hole to save you from yourself. You cannot let people know who you really are. It would be very, very bad. Or the, the simple childlike joy that you get from Jason, who mm. is immersed in the same trashy, crappy American culture as Eleanor, but finds all of it wonderful. So it's interesting. I was listening to, because there is a Good Place podcast as well. So if anyone listening to this is like, Phew, this has been a great one episode. <laughs> I want to listen to like hundreds. Thousands of those. Yeah. yeah. There is a Good Place podcast. And I was listening to the one that, for the finale. Yeah. And Michael Shaw was saying that um, Jason Mendoza has the shortest distance to go in terms of his redemption arc yeah. because even though he's not great because he's a petty thief and, yeah. you know, quickly reacts to things in ways that aren't very good, but at the same time he's got a very childlike innocence and emotion about him. I mean, yeah. that's why he does, you know, he'll do Molotov cocktails and stuff because <laughs> to him that's both fun and also a great way of I feel an emotion and I need to react with yeah. that emotion as soon as I can. He's very, and that's very, a child. He's very plugged into himself. He, he's, he is not lying to himself. He's no, gotten, not at all. The joke being, of course, when you first meet him, he is lying for the first time. Yes, yeah. And, and also that his journey to get him to the good place involved him pretending to be a DJ that he wasn't, pretending to be DJ Acid Cat. Yeah. Oh, another great set, Jason. They love you, dude. They don't love me, man. They love Acid Cat. These chews are fake. They hit my ears like boxing gloves of sadness. Oh, that's some poetic thoughts, B. I gotta be myself. He's not someone who's comfortable with putting on a mask and pretending to be someone else. And very often what's wrong with the other characters who need to learn is they need to take off the mask they were wearing and find something else underneath it. And he's never had a mask on. That's true. And he loses his mask within three episodes. He goes, I can't do this. Yeah. And it's just, oh, the, the essence of him being his inner and outer selves are completely integrated. Yeah. It's the reason why they intended for him to be the first one to decide to go at the very right. end, which I think it's then revealed he doesn't, well, he doesn't mean to. He goes to look for the, the pendant to, yeah. the, and then he ends up essentially becoming the Buddhist, the, the monk that he yeah. was in the at the beginning. It's an incredibly subtle way of playing that. It's you realise that, that the setup at the beginning is you're supposed to think he is the opposite of a Buddhist monk. Yes. He is this absolute like, petty criminal, selfish, stupid, dog-like creature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's that character within the sitcom. He's, he's the Woody Boyd, he's the Father Dougal, he's the real fool. Yeah. Uh, and the truth of it being that that's an incredibly noble aspirational almost buddhist sense of knowing yourself yes he's completely yeah. integrated he hasn't you're right he hasn't got far to go mm. and it's got faith in him which is yeah. really, really lovely you follow him through and it's lovely to watch him be healed yeah i decided to wait for you to come back jason it's been like a thousand baramis i know but i wanted to see you again <laughs> It was actually pretty easy to wait. I sort of just sat quietly and let my mind drift away. Thought about you and the infinity of the universe. Kind of like a monk. What do you mean? One of the things that I noticed watching this again, because I watched it a couple of times in lockdown, I loved it. And you sort of said, well, let's watch a couple of episodes. And I end up watching eight because you can't just watch no. one. Yeah, yeah. It is a bingeable show. And one of the reasons it's a bingeable show is it borrows that puzzle structure from drama. So you, mm. it throws you across cliffhanger to cliffhanger to cliffhanger. You want to know what comes next. What's beautiful about it is it's made by a man, Michael Schur, who's worked on The Office, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. These shows that have got a complete faith in the form of the American half-hour sitcom. Mm. Just as maybe people are losing faith, can we still make these shows? We're looking for more comedy drama. A lot of the glory goes to the big dramatic series, the great box sets and the things that win Emmys. He's got complete faith in the sitcom as a form. Mm. And what he does, and I only noticed it this time around, is he builds a thing in which sitcom god, Ted Danson... The real question, Eleanor, is what do we owe to each other? What? Did I sell you a drink? Am I a bartender? <laughs> Drinks are on me. 
Good luck. Who is basically yeah. sitcom god. Yes, yeah. Builds, in order to build heaven or a test for people or whatever, builds a sitcom where they live. Because every sitcom is you throw four disparate characters together and you trap them somewhere. Yeah. And the fact this is Sartre's hell is other people. Well, that's what a sitcom is. Yeah. Four people who can't agree are thrown together in a place. You thought we would torture each other. And we did, for a little. But we also took care of each other. We improved each other. And the four of us became a team. So, the only thing you succeeded in doing was bringing us all together. Ted Danson, the god of sitcom, builds the village from the prisoner and traps some sitcom characters in there to try and make them learn, to try and make them better. The thing that sitcom characters never do, no learning, the Seinfeld rule, no learning, no speeches. They will constantly do speeches, they will constantly learn, within the sitcom form. Yeah. It's this absolute act of faith that the American sitcom can contain within it the biggest challenge in the world, which is to write a philosophical treatise on what it is like to be human. To write something that would be like Jean-Paul Sartre's Huy Clou, but we'll do it in the form of the American sitcom and we'll cue you up by making Ted Danson in it. To yeah. say, we're not going to go outside the rules, but you will watch this because you love 24 minutes of characters. Yeah. I loved its absolute faith in its form at a time when maybe we're losing faith in comedy. It says, you can answer everything using comedy. And mm. it blew me away to realise that it was this love letter to trapping four characters together somewhere. Yeah. And they put it on screen. It said, this is what we're going to do. That's it. My big mistake was bringing you all together, having you be soulmates living next to each other. Next time, I'll spread you out so it's more of a slow burn. Uh, Next time? And I think we've got Greg Daniels to thank for that because he was the, I mean, I use the term creator loosely because he was the adapter of the the office and he was terrified and and he was just as convinced as everyone else that, that, Everyone would hate it. It wouldn't get yeah. a second series, you know. Because it would be the American Forty Towers. Exactly. It would be put up as a folly. You can't do this. It's the American Red Dwarf. Yeah, it's yeah. the American IT crowd. Yeah. <laughs> There's and loads so of these. Can keep, we can go on. The reason that the US office worked so well was because, I believe, my own thoughts about Gervais, <laughs> this is not the podcast for them, but I believe it was Gervais and Merchant when they were having a meeting after, you know, doing all the pilot and all that. Because yeah. the pilot, part of the contract had to be basically word for word the same yeah. pilot as the British one. Okay. Slow down, hold you on, move too on. fast. Hold on, hold on. What is the problem here? What's going on? Put my stuff in the This the third time he's done it. It wasn't even funny in the It's okay here. People sometimes take advantage because it's so relaxed. But then there was a moment where they were like, I think you need to make this for an American audience. I think you need to do this. And... So Greg Daniels did. It's a very sensible move because Americans are not used to understanding other cultures in mm. the way that we are. We all grew up watching movies from America and yes. comics from France and things like that. We're very used to putting a little filter on to go, this isn't from here. America is the culturally dominant country on earth. It is not used to tuning in to another culture. It very much likes things to be in its own accent. Yeah, it's funny you say that because, and this would have definitely changed by now, but I remember someone talking about how women tend to be better writers of male characters than men are writing female characters because women grew up watching things from men's perspectives. Wow. So we understand how men think and what they want because that's what we've been surrounded by for our entire lives. I think that's it. That's totally But it, it's yeah. going to change now because we're starting to see more and more women being able to present their yeah. their outlooks in media. So we'll end up with it with being able to go both ways but it's you have to be exposed to the other point of view to understand that we talked about it when i did asterix on this podcast saying mm. that it was really useful as a child to have to look through another country's eyes back at britain and see what they thought of the britons yes. you went, oh we're not the standard thing when we did the ladybird books we had them translated into every other language chinese brazilian portuguese the only ones we had to rewrite from scratch were the american versions yeah <laughs> Gervais and Merchant were like, okay, they agreed that this needs to be sort of made more for an American audience. But what I love is that because Greg Daniels had, he created King of the Hill and King of the Hill has a lot of heart in it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of subtlety and heart in something that is essentially, you know, redneck animation. It's very warm. Yeah. Dad? What kind of man tells another man he loves him? 
I don't want to die with my sissy son who loves me. No, no, Dad, it, it's not like that. I, I didn't mean Get it. Get out of here! I can't even look at you. How dare you love me? But I don't. I don't love you. He's got no pulse. Start the paddle. But because he'd also worked on SNL and, and things like that, so he knows how to write comedy, knows how to write gags and bits and, and character. But then he would put this heart into stuff and he wanted to do that for the American office. He wanted to put yeah. heart in it. And that's what meant that it could run for as long as it did yeah. because the show had heart. And I think what made it that is that he runs his writer's rooms and his productions with that same heart which yeah. ends up spilling into the shows like you can with, tell can't you if it's a happy room yeah like the writer's room so like mindy kaling yeah. and bj novak and stuff they weren't supposed to be characters in the show they he just was like no i want to put them all in paul lieberstein who then ended up becoming the showrunner when greg went over to parks and rec who plays toby you know in hr which is why occasionally toby is just <laughs> not in the show as much for a while just busy because <laughs> he's running the show he's in a different office yeah yeah and and then the, but they trust the actors as well they would yeah. they even they would get to a point where they the writers would go to the actors and say right we need to do this we're arguing in the writer's room about whether they would do this or this. What do you think? And the actor would go, oh, well, they wouldn't think this. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I think that that's the route that my character would go down. And that communication, that respect for one another, the respect for everyone involved in terms of the set and everything, the amount of love within the production then meant that all these people that that sort of cut their teeth in those worlds, ended up taking that with them. Justin Spitzer went on to do Superstore, which again, a lot of heart, a lot of love. You know, there's obviously Mindy Kaling went across and and did a Mindy project. Anyone that ever went somewhere else, they took a little piece of what they'd learned. You can see that with this. I was watching the credits go past for the first time, watching uh, Good Place again. And the names that pop up and you go, oh, I love their stuff. So Jen Statsky, who did Hacks, is from The Good Place. And you go, oh, I can see the same values, the same uh, desire to discuss big ideas, Mm -hmm. the same openness to arguments about different philosophies and different points of view, which I think is what drives hacks about Mm -hmm. the difference between different eras and different attitudes towards feminism and comedy and things. That openness to different people's arguments, which is what The Good Place is about. It's noticeable that when he goes to heaven, effectively, it's non-denominational. They get rid of that joke straight away with every religion got 5% right. So who was right? I mean, about all of this. Well, let's see. Hindus are a little bit right. Muslims a little bit. Jews, Christians, Buddhists, every religion guessed about 5%. Yes. Now, for a very religious country like America, or even a discussion of God and the afterlife in a world post-9-11 riven by difference and arguing about who owns the truth, to Mm. say, none of you got it right. We park that. We're not going to say which religion is right. We'll deal with what's in the human heart. Yeah. We will listen to everybody. Yeah. And even when we put a Buddhist monk in, they're as close as they can be. But we know Doug Forsett got it 95% right and he was just stoned. Yeah, yeah. Except for Doug Forsett. Who's Doug Forsett? Well, Doug was a stoner kid who lived in Calgary during the 1970s. One night he got really high on mushrooms and his best friend Randy said, hey, what do you think happens after we die? And... Doug just launched into this long monologue where he got like 92% correct. We couldn't believe what we were hearing. That's him actually right up there. It's a very bold joke that makes me laugh as a British person. But I imagine as an American person where denominational belief and religion is massive. That's a very brave joke to do in an American show Mm. to say, do you know what? The church was wrong. Yeah. The moral guidance of your church, that was kind of pointless. Yeah. What a thing to say. Uh, My friend Randy and I ate some magic mushrooms. Randy asked me, what do you think happens when you die? And I saw with perfect clarity how the afterlife works. Immediately, I knew I had to live a perfect life. Well, not immediately. The next day, all I could do was watch kung fu movies and stroke a blanket that I thought was my cat. I count myself as Christian. And I say it in that sense because it's a loaded word and yeah. tends to put people on edge. But I, for a very long time, struggled to find a church. I have found a church over here in the UK. And what drew me to it was the fact that the Reverend at the time, who unfortunately since has had to retire because 
it's Church of England one, and when you turn 75, you have to retire. All right. Yeah, and the reason they've stayed Church of England, England is because they're quite politically active in terms of desperately trying to change the church from within to ensure that there's female ministers, same-sex marriage. You can only move um, the synod from within. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so I like that about them. But the the reverend at the time when I started going had written a book called How to Be a Bad Christian and a Better Human Being. And it was all about the fact that he noticed that when he did funerals, and sometimes weddings, but a lot of the time funerals, people would come up to him and they'd say, oh, look, I'm a bad Christian. I haven't been to church since forever or I don't really believe in it. And But he'd be chatting to them. And he said they were always the people who got there early to help set up or were providing lifts or doing the teas and coffees or packing up afterwards or were somehow actively doing stuff within the community and he reached a moment where he was like hang on people who say to me oh I'm not as you know I'm not I'm not a very good Christian or I'm not Christian but and in an an apologetic way to him he always found were more Christian than the Christians that went to his church which is in the bible there the idea of in fact Jesus talks about that a lot don't don't do the gestures don't do the rituals What's in your heart matters. That's exactly. the whole message of the New Testament. It's to say you can be the most loyal and uh, attentive Pharisee, but it means nothing. Yes. It's pretty much in the book. It's yeah, not, it's, yeah. not new, it's not new news. No. There's a lovely approach to that faith or that idea of faith or that idea of trying to be better in the good place that by making it sort of almost post-religious exactly, fills yeah. a gap. I was at a talk by Robin Dunbar, the anthropologist and evolutionary scientist. He was talking about religion and he was saying that we need it and when you lose it, we lose something. And they studied and they said scientifically communities uh, adhere and survive and people are happier if they have something that either is religion or replaces religion. What's great about The Good Place is it's a completely post-religious, secular argument for saying there is good in asking these questions. Whatever religion you are, you will be focused and uh, aware of these questions. Mm. There is a real luxury in secularism in saying they're not important, that they've been answered. And the great thing about all the great religions is that this is up for debate. And Mm -hmm. the good place is a brilliant secular answer. To remove the religion from that and say, Mm -hmm. okay, here's the philosophical ethical, moral, human. it's an ethics lesson at school rather than an RE lesson. Oh, I feel like ethics should be taught more than anything. To educate the next generations in a way that thinks, oh, hang on, is this the right thing? Am I doing this correctly? And I, th- fact- I, think the, I think the next generation might be the one that really, really gets this. At my kids' school, they do have ethics lessons. And I don't know if it's across the board or it's national curriculum or anything. I yeah. think kids are pretty much born with a, a fairly standard set of ethics. Yeah, um, yeah. And if not, that's what I love about kids' TV. You know, I, I've yeah. worked in a lot of kids' TV myself. And what I love about it is quite often it will have morals. It's what I loved about Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is yeah. that it always had like a moral. Yeah, and those, those shows like He-Man that ended with something yeah, they'd learned. exactly. I, yeah, we take the piss out of it with the South Park, I learned something today, but yeah. that's what made us. You know, I think we all learned something today. It's fine to have your own beliefs and your own traditions, but as soon as you start excluding people from your ways, only because of their race, you become separatist. Then you reach a certain age and it's like, you know, a kid would be like wanting to go to the farm where all of their food comes from. Yeah. You're like, it's not quite the, the old McDonald's farm that we've been telling you about. It's, you know, it's not the happy cows and the green pastures. Tell you what, the grown-ups dodge this ethical question. And I know you're really sensitive to it, but could you just dodge it too? We won't ask. Yeah. And there's a real tendency to, to say that kids are asking what they call awkward questions. Mm. Maybe that's what's lovely about The Good Place. It does look like Sesame Street. It yes, does look like a children's program. Right. That idea, that idealised community, it's set up to say, the last time you were encouraged to ask these questions was by children's television. Mm. The Muppets asked these questions. And maybe mm. you've been watching a lot of grown-up television where the joke was that it was set in the moral world of Eleanor Shellstrop. Yeah. Where you had to just be tough and hard. I mean, the childlike nature of the way the show looks and feels does feel like a thing that's a school's program. Mm. It's quite nice to be entertained while you're being educated. Oh, yeah. And well, it, fe- it, it feels like a privilege to go, oh, God, I've really wanted one of these programs. I've missed these. There was a moment, and in fact, this brings, I think, right at the beginning of this episode, I said that there was something I wanted to talk about, but I didn't want to give away any spoilers. But, I mean, we're now, we're, we're past that point. We're too far. We've committed now. And what I wanted to say was that <laughs> one of my, the big moments where I went, <gasps> like, you know, after all of the twists and turns in the first yeah. series was there's the moment where they work out that the scoring system is wrong. Everyone's been going to the bad place. You can't win. Yeah. And the reason for that is because when the rules were initially set, the world was a simpler place. Your Honor, I once stood in front of you and said I thought there was something wrong with the point system. 
I finally know what it is. Life now is so complicated. It's impossible for anyone to be good enough for the good place. So let's say your grandma's ill. So you would go out and you would, maybe you would grow some flowers and then you might go and cut them, collect them, and then physically walk them over to her house and deliver the flowers to her. Yeah. And, and that was counted as a positive thing that you did. But now we still behave as if those are the nice things to do, but forget that society has changed. So we don't go to the same amount of effort. Now grandma feels sick. So you go online, you order some flowers that come from some farm that's technically putting a bunch of CO2 in the air or something, you know, (laughs) then you get the delivery and then it's all packaged. And then, you know, the the farm workers at the, at the uh, flower farm, I don't know what they're called. (laughs) They're, they're, They're underpaid and... Flower factory. Flower well, factory. Where they, where they built the, the big industrial... The flower rig. Yeah. Where they, they pump the flowers out of the That's ground. That's right. That one. We I don't, don't even know. I don't know how flowers are made. I wouldn't no, know. I don't know how they get from A to B. <laughs> yeah. But whatever it is, you will do accidentally, you will cause consequences. Yeah. Because we've complicated our lives. It's yeah. a beautiful point to make. And they outweigh the good that we're doing. Yeah. And so we're always in a negative. These days, just buying a tomato at a grocery store means that you are unwittingly supporting... Toxic pesticides, exploiting labor, contributing to global warming. Humans think that they're making one choice, but they're actually making dozens of choices they don't even know they're making. And I remember that just having a huge impact on me. Not enough to make me actively... Do you know what? There's been some small changes that I have made. And I think that as long as we've got things that are happening, you know, in terms of sitcoms or media or anything that we're sort of consuming i think as long as the things we're consuming are allowing us to make those changes yeah no matter how small they are i mean it's better than not right well i I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful about this as a show it's ambition which comes from a faith in its form the people who make this love comedy and think comedy can ask big questions Mm. when you look at what the good place is asking these are questions that are normally asked by the highest forms of art. Mm. What does it mean to be human? How can I be good? What are moral decisions? What difference can I make? Can I be a good person? These are huge questions. And it's chosen to answer it in a form that is incredibly lowly. Yes. Fart gags and yep. uh, sitcom and bathos and clowning and slapstick. Nailed it. These are the most debased art forms. Yeah. And it's saying, I can answer these or at least question these incredibly difficult topics using these tools and actually these might be weirdly the ideal tools to use oh i couldn't put it better myself we need some place that we can talk in private i agree let me show you my bottle what and it has got that in common with sartre and beckett in that it understands that you can answer these big questions by doing stuff that is from the circus our circus is sitcom. It's it's, yeah. it's crappy and it's 24 minutes long. We don't even allow it an hour yeah. to answer our questions. But these guys have gone, yep, we've been making these for years. I reckon you put a room full of clever people together and they will make you, using this factory, the sitcom factory, high art. Yeah. And weirdly, Good Place's ambition to be high art is so bracing. They've got if you infinite work in monkeys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're infinite clever monkeys yeah. and we've got to work and it's yeah. brilliant. In fact, I would I would say that the closest thing I've found to something else that walks that line between yeah. seriousness and pathos and big questions and everything, as well as ridiculousness, was the film Everything Everywhere All at Once. What's happening? I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. A long time to help you. It's two extremes. It's something that is so beyond being able to comprehend or explain in normal human terms that is only palatable because it is offset by butt plug gags. <laughs> and sausage fingers. And, yeah. 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 and also it's use of things like CGI and sci-fi to use the language of excess that in a Marvel film is often used to bludgeon you mm-hmm. to say, right, okay, we can use all those techniques, those incredible set pieces. They do in The Good Place where there'll be a scene which looks like something from Jumanji with other wild yes. animals running past going, okay, usually CGI and effects are used to stop you thinking. Mm. What if we use those same tools to keep you entertained and to make you laugh, but also in the service of answering some really big questions, which very rarely happens in spectacle cinema. Yes. Which is meant to just make you go, oh. Although I think what's lovely is they were never thinking in terms of that. 
I, I no. feel like they're not working backwards. It's no. very much uh, they're gone. Oh well, let's do this. Well, CGI is the only way we can do this. If we this. need to demonstrate it, we'll yeah, do that. If yeah. everyone needs to be Janet for one episode, everyone can be Janet for one yeah. episode. So, in essence, Hume thought that we don't truly have a self. We're just a bundle of our ever-changing impressions. Just admit it, man. You're embarrassed you fell in love with an Arizona trash bag. You're right about the infinite number of monkeys. That room, that writer's room thing where questions will be asked that one writer wouldn't ask. Mm. Frank Cottrell Boyce said something brilliant about the American writing system, that it was all to do with pulling people from America's best colleges, the brightest people from Harvard, people who did the Harvard Lampoon, and so the Simpsons room is people from mathematics backgrounds, mm-hmm. scientists, and then people who were doing politics and philosophy. You put them all in a room, and instead of asking them to cure cancer, you ask them to write monologues for SNL and then do a sitcom. But you mustn't forget, those are the cleverest people you've yeah. got. He said, the waste of the human mind that the American sitcom system may leave us behind will look at it like Passchendaele. Should they have been working on cancer? And I think, weirdly, the good place is almost like saying, do you know what? They're, they're really clever. Why don't you let them be clever? I'm telling you, I used to be cool, man. I studied so much things. Art and music and the, um, the one with the number piles where i'd be like two and you'd be like six math yes and then i came here where time stretched out forever and every second of my existence was amazing but my brain became this big dumb blob what it does by adopting a different sort of shape and saying it can aim for something else is it stops doing the sitcom thing of resetting every episode it carries you forwards you want to follow the mystery it's borrowed that from from lost and the prisoner and things what's going on what's going on it doesn't quite reset and yet because it's got Michael in the middle of it, Michael's ultimate revenge is to push the button and reset them. Maybe once a series? Eleanor, come on in. You, Eleanor Shellstrop, are dead. Cool. Well, then it's like in the second series, almost every episode does literally reset. Yeah, they start again. Yeah, yeah. It understands that the form itself is about resetting and no Mm. one learning. Hi there. (laughs) Who are you? I'm Janet. I think this is yours. After I was rebooted, I found it in my mouth. What? Sitcom form traps people in a locked space and won't let them learn and says, what happens if they try and learn? It's, mm. it's sitcom characters trying to escape from a sitcom. That's yeah. the plot. <laughs> Can they escape yeah. the trap that the man from Cheers has set for them? <laughs> <laughs> you know the way you feel when you see a chimpanzee and a baby tiger who've become friends? <laughs> That's how you're going to feel every day. One of the things that sitcom does that drama doesn't do as often is to build a little family that you want to come back and visit again and again because they're a family you know. Yeah. that They have familiarity. Mm. And you go back to see them. And I think this is a very good show that by the end, because it's about will they find happiness, mm-hmm. you want them all to win. You definitely want them all to win. And the finale of this is a beautiful exercise in satisfying the audience's desire for everyone to do well. Yeah. You want them all to be rewarded, which is an impossible thing in a show that's about deciding who doesn't doesn't get rewarded yeah it's a lovely set of characters and i love all of them mm. and i want to see them all do well yeah because if they can do well then we can do well yes so as i mentioned before you can sit on this bench as long as you want and whenever you're ready you just walk through care to join me for a bit <sighs> margarita always What's lovely about The Good Place is it doesn't tackle issues of faith. It tackles issues of ethics and philosophy. And yet, weirdly, it is a massive act of faith. Mm. It's an act of faith in sitcom and comedy to be able to express big ideas. And best of all, it's an act of faith in people. Mm. Because even though your lead character is the worst of humankind and knows it, all the way through, you're hoping and yearning that we'll head to a point where we think people can be better. Mm-hmm. And over the four series, that is the thing that Michael is the architect and the demons learn. They have to let people be allowed to be better. Yeah. And that is the story. The story is you can't condemn people on first impressions or even by their actions because people can be better. And I think post-2016, when we were all divided and very angry with each other, what a brilliant show that says it's got faith in people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why it's a really good comfort watch. Okay, top three moments of your not life Mm -hmm. with us. Go. You 
telling us that we should try to help other people on Earth. The moment that we all got into the good place for real, and then it's an eight million way tie of every time Jason and I kissed. He was a really good kisser. I bet he was. One of the things I probably suffer from most is a loss of faith in people. Mm. Because the world keeps throwing up examples of, oh, is it really worth trying? And this is a comedy that says, no, you can do better than that. Yeah. It's a corrective. It says that you could be in a good place. Yeah. And I think what I love about it and any sort of good sitcoms is that it forces you to see the world from those different perspectives. Yeah. In a way that's more palatable because there's comedy. Yeah. It tricks you into thinking and seeing life through these eyes that you wouldn't normally do. And because of that, you're then more empathetic to what you see and notice in real life. That's a brilliant point. The reward for comedy is the laugh, the endorphin hit. Mm. And you can only get that endorphin hit if you've played the game along with the comedy, which is guessing what people will do next and being right or wrong. And with comic characters, in order for you to guess what they're going to do next, you can't just come at it from your point of view because you don't know. You have to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. And the thing with all clowns, you put yourself in their very big shoes Mm. and you join them and you go, I wonder what she's going to do. And then to get the next joke, you have to put yourself in the other character's position. You're flipping perspectives all the time. You immediately get a reward for having empathised with a character. And I suppose that's what the message of the show is, that we have to get along and have to understand each other. Yeah, that's it it in a nutshell. We've we've got to empathise, we've got to have patience. And as those characters learn about themselves and who they are, we also learn about those things and that makes it easier for us to go, oh, this person in real life that's a bit like that character, maybe they're like this for similar reasons. What a lovely thing to learn. Mm. Oh, see, I told you, sitcoms plus learning. It's a whole new form. Uh, thanks for bringing the good place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks for letting me relive it. Picture a wave in the ocean. You can see it, measure it, its height, the way the sunlight refracts when it passes through, and it's there, and you can see it, you know what it is, it's a wave. And then it crashes on the shore, and it's gone. But the water is still there. The wave was just a a different wave of the water to be for a little while. That's one conception of death for a Buddhist. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris the cheese and pickle family of podcasts find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.